we're finishing up our series on the journey, on the, the journeys that people take, the unique kind of journeys, pathways they take with Christ. And the teaching team thought it would be good to, as we wind that up, to invite a mature, uh, experienced Christian who'd had a long journey with Christ uh, to speak. Um, didn't fool me at all. They just wanted an old person. <laughs> Uh, to talk about their faith, and I guess I fit that category pretty well. A lot of people uh, have had sort of conversion experiences where at some point in their life they were not Christians and then they became Christians. I never had anything like that. I grew up in a Christian home. My parents had become Christians uh, just shortly before I was born, and we became a part of a really neat, growing, vibrant church, and so faith um, my relationship with Jesus, the fact that, that God forgives me and loves me, that I just had that my whole life growing up, and I'm really grateful for that. It was not just in our church, but in our home when we prayed together and faith was a part of, of our lives. Um, but I had a couple experiences in my growing up years that I think really influenced my journey and my relationship with God. Uh, the first one took place actually when I was in high school. Our, um, our church had hired a youth director who was a student at Wheaton College, which was a couple hours away. Um, his name was Bob Radcliffe, and Bob was uh, really, really tall, 6'5", or something like that, very skinny and homely. He, he was a homely guy, um, but, but he had this great heart for God, a heart for kids, and, and I really loved him and feel like I grew a lot through him. So, so one time, he invited some of us high school students and said, how about if we would just meet together on Sunday evening just to read the Bible and learn and share and pray together? And that was something I thought I would really like to do. Um, so I was always at church, not just Sunday morning, but Sunday evening as well. So as long as I was there for the Sunday evening service, I would stay for this get-together with the other kids too. So I remember the first week that we met. I think there were five kids and Bob, and we were sitting in this little office area, and we did some Bible study and talked and shared together. And then Bob said, um, okay, well, we need to wind this up, uh, so why don't we pray? So I did what I always did when I prayed. I closed my eyes, bowed my head, folded my hands, and Bob began to pray. Only I'd never heard anybody pray like this. Instead of the usual kind of uh, King James sort of praying, he said something like, well, God, oh, I sure enjoy being here with these kids, but you know, I've got this test coming up tomorrow that I haven't really had time to study for. Well, anyway... I opened my eyes and looked to see who he was talking to because he couldn't be talking to God because you didn't talk to God that way. Only I discovered that you could and that you could talk to God the way you talk to, to anybody else. And during those next few weeks as we met together on Sunday evening in that little room in the church, an amazing thing happened. God moved. He moved from just being out there in heaven you know, Jesus seated at the right hand of God the Father. He moved to being close to me so that when I was going through my day, when I was at school and I couldn't get my locker open, he was there with me. When my girlfriend broke up with me, he was there with me. And it really changed my relationship with Jesus in a way that I am so grateful for. 
So I, I appreciate the fact that then when I was ready to go to college, I decided I would go to a, to a Christian college because I wanted my faith to continue to grow. And so I went to a, a denominationally affiliated college thinking that it would really be a, a help to my faith and my growing. And this was a school where they required that everybody take the introduction to religion class. And I was excited to take that. So an, a terrible thing happened during that class. The professor destroyed my faith. He pointed out to us as a class that the Bible was not true. You couldn't believe it. It was made of myths and legends. It wasn't historically accurate. The picture that it paints of God is, is way off. And of course, it was backed up by the textbook that we used, which he wrote. <laughs> and so for me, uh, for whom my faith had really been important, kind of a bedrock for me, it was, it was catastrophic. And I remember going home, and I'm, I, I'm not sure if it was over a spring break or for the summer, but I remember lying in bed one night, and I, I was beside myself. I, mean, I didn't, every, how could I have been so stupid? I mean, everything I thought was true that I'd based my life on obviously was not true, and I was really screwed up. And, and I lay there in bed, and I, and I said, God, I, I don't even know if you're real anymore. I don't know what I believe, but if you, if you are real, if you are God, and if you care about me, uh, just show yourself to me. And he did, in a way. So I'm lying there in the dark in my bedroom, and this light appears, sort of. The thing I compare it most to is like on Star Trek, you know, beam me up, Scotty, where they suddenly start to take, take shape. This light appeared, and it was starting to sort of form, um, and I knew it was Jesus. I couldn't, I couldn't look at him. I was so ashamed of my lack of faith, so sorry that I doubted, I turned away. I said, I'm, I am sorry I doubted, forgive me. And so my faith then was kind of re-energized re and rebuilt again. And I was able to continue doing what had been an important part of my life, and that was you know, basing it on the Bible, on the Word of God. And when I think about a mature Christian, I think about a person who is uh, growing in their understanding of the Bible, the Word of God. There's a, there's a great story in the Old Testament about what happens when people don't have the, the, the Word of God, how far they can wander from Him. It's actually found in 2 Kings chapter 23. It's a story. So, so remember David, Saul, David, and Solomon, the three kings of Israel. And then after Solomon's death, the nation divides. They have a civil war, and there's Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And pretty quickly, the northern kingdom just goes haywire. They're defeated. They're carried away. We never hear anything about them again. But for a couple hundred years after that, the, the southern kingdom survives. And at one point, they have a king whose name is Manasseh. And he was king for 55 years in Judah. And he was as wicked a king as they could possibly had. He led people away from God. We need to know that when we have leaders you know, who, are, 
who are opposed to God, they can lead people and influence us away from God. He set up on, on hilltops, he set up places of worship where they would worship pagan gods. He, he built apartments in the temple complex for male and female prostitutes. He, uh, he actually uh, set up a, a, an idol with, with fire burning in it and people would take their infant children and burn them alive in the arms of this, this idol. He ruled for 55 years how far Israel you know, drifted away from God during that time. Uh, his, uh, his son Ammon then was king. He was king for two years. And then his son became king after him. And his name was Josiah. So he became king when he was eight years old. And we don't know much about him for the next 10 years. But when he's 18, he makes an important decision. I sometimes wonder what prompted him to do that. You know, I wonder if as a child they... The old high priest had told him stories about when, when God had directed them to build the temple and Solomon had built this glorious temple there in Jerusalem and, and the time they, they were going to dedicate the temple to begin it and, and the Shekinah glory of God, this cloud of the presence of God came down and filled the temple so that the priest couldn't even go into the temple. And, they, and it says they, they offered so many sacrifices to God, they were beyond counting. And people fell on their faces in the presence of God and worshiped him. I wonder if he heard stories like that. I wonder if he longed for that to be true again. But at that point, the temple had been pretty much destroyed. It was in ruins. Every time a conquering army would come, they'd pay them off, buy them off by taking the, the bronze and gold instruments from the temple. They'd stripped the, the bronze off the big doors, given away, and now it was just a ruin. And so this young king, 18-year-old Josiah, says, I, I think we need to, to restore the temple. So he directs that process to begin. And so they begin this huge process of trying to clear out the junk and rebuild and patch things. And in the process of that, apparently something like this happened, that maybe they were looking through some pile of junk there in the temple, and a workman finds a scroll. And he takes it to Hilkiah, the, uh, the high priest, and he gives it to him. And the, the high priest takes it and blows the, the dust off of it. And he wants to open it, but it's so old and, and brittle, he doesn't want to break it. And so very carefully, he begins to open this scroll. And as he does so, as he begins to read what's there, his, his eyes fill with tears when he realizes what he has. This is a scroll of the Word of God, probably of the book of Deuteronomy. And, and the Word of God had been gone from Judah for 75 years, for 75 years, there was no word of God. There was no Torah. There was no copy of what, how God wanted people to live. And now they had it again. And so he goes to this young king and he begins to read to him what God says in his word about how people should live and how they can know him and honor him. And Josiah realizes how far they've come from God. And it says he tears his robes and he throws ashes on his head and he falls down for, before God in repentance. And so he calls together all the people and they gather there in Jerusalem and he has read to them this scroll of the word of God. And let me read to you what, 
what happens then. This is 2 Kings chapter 23, starting with the first verse. It says, Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, and he went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, and all the people from the least to the greatest. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, statutes, and decrees with all his heart and all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in the book. And then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. You see what happens when people don't have the word of God? I mean, it's, it's almost like they can't be blamed for it in a way. How, how do they know what God wants from them? How do they know how they can follow God's law and God's word if they don't have it? How can they know God himself and have a relationship with him? I think that that's pointed out again in Psalm, uh, the very first Psalm, which is a Psalm about the word of God, tells us what, what our relationship with the word of God should be like. Let me read you this psalm. This is just Psalm chapter 1, the very first one. It says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with uh, the wicked or stand in the way of sinners that, uh, that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers, not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. The psalmist says that the key to living a life that honors God, that is blessed by God, is the word of God. He actually calls it the, the law of the Lord. And he says, you know, if, if you're not following that, uh, you're probably living like this. And he uses three kind of terms that grow increasingly intimate to describe what it's like living your life apart from the law of God. First thing he says is, you know, you're not going to be blessed if you walk in step with the wicked, when the Bible talks about walking, it isn't talking about walking. It's talking about your lifestyle. It's saying if your lifestyle, if the way you live your life is not based on the word of God, it's probably going to be based on the wicked. I think about our culture today, how far it has gone in so many areas from the word of God and from his desire for us. And how easy it is for us to model our lifestyle, the way we live our lives, not on the word of God, but on the wicked, as he says. Secondly, he says they're not going to be blessed if they stand in the way that sinners take. Who determines your morals? Who determines what's right and wrong? Is it some celebrity? Some politician? No. God says... You cannot walk like the culture does. You cannot stand in the way that sinners stand. The third thing he says is sit in the company of mockers. You cannot have that kind of fellowship with people who are opposed to the law of God. 
I, I believe that there are many influences in our culture who are mockers of the word of God. Who set a lifestyle, a way of living, a way of walking that is opposed to God and his will. And who try to influence us to be a part of that, he says. So we cannot live that way, he says, and be blessed by God. Instead, what does he say? He says, the person who is blessed delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on his law. Delights and meditates on the law. It, it, to me, it's kind of too bad he uses the word law here. Because most of us don't like laws very much, do we? We like freedom. We like to be able to live our lives the way we choose to live them. But when you think about it, what, what would life be like if we didn't have laws? What, what if we didn't have laws about driving, about traffic? I mean, you could, as I don't know from experience, but I would guess, you would just speed, go as fast as you wanted to any time. You come to a stop sign, pff, you could stop if you want to, but you don't have to because there's no law that says you need to. You can just barrel right through it. Do you have to stay on your side of the highway? No, you can go on the other side because there is no law about it, right? Or food laws? What if we didn't have laws about how food was to be manufactured and kept? You'd be afraid to buy anything from the grocery store because you'd have no idea what was in it. You'd be hesitant to eat it. We, we can't function as people together without laws. And the same thing is true in our relationship with God. How, how would we know how to live? How would we know how to honor him how would we know how to receive his blessing and his approval if God hadn't given us his law, the Bible, the word of God? It seems to me sort of like this. I know nothing about cars. I know nothing about cars. So if it were up to me, our cars would fall apart pretty quickly and I wouldn't have any idea what to do about it. But I don't know if you knew this. When you buy a car, the manufacturer gives you an instruction book these are the laws about how you're supposed to operate the car. And when, when something goes wrong and some light comes on in Sally's car and she says, what is that? I say, well, it's, uh, you know, because I wouldn't know. I'm so grateful, you know, to have these kinds of, are they laws? Do I have to do those things? Well, no, I don't have to. But if I want the car to run, if I want it to be economical, I would be wise to do that. I think that's what God is saying about his word as well. You know, we don't like to think about it as being laws, but in, in a way, it is the way we can govern our lives and live lives that are pleasing and honoring to him. So the psalmist then concludes by saying, okay, it's, it's like this. It can be one of two ways. He says, you can be a tree or you can be chaff. So he says, you can be like a tree, Tree planted by streams of water. I, trees are so, so neat, aren't they? I read once, I tried to find it, but I can't, but I read once that a, a large oak tree can have 100,000 leaves and that underground, there's as much tree growing, root system growing, as there is tree above ground, the trunk and the branches. And the tree is reaching down to the, to the nutrients and to the water and what it needs to live. And it holds it solid there so that the tree doesn't blow over. It says you can be like that. Your life can be like a tree 
Or, he says, your life can be like chaff. You know what chaff is? So chaff is on grain, like a grain of wheat. There's that little paper-thin kind of covering over the, the wheat. That's the chaff. One of the things that impressed us when we went to Israel was we, we, we visited a winnowing floor where they would actually deal with that chaff. It was, it was big, the size of the stage maybe, kind of hard, uh, flat stones on the bottom, a low wall around it. And they would bring the grain when they'd harvested, they'd dump it on the, on the floor there. And then we'd take something heavy and roll it over to kind of separate it together. And then we'd take a, a winnowing fork, kind of a big fork like this. And they would take the grain and they would throw it up in the air. And they would try to build these these areas like on the tops of hills so there'd be a bit of breeze. Then they throw the grain up in the air and the wheat, the heavy kernels of wheat would fall to the ground, but the chaff, the chaff would blow away in the slightest breeze. It was worth nothing. Nobody cared if it blew away. God says in Psalm 1, so in a sense, you have that choice. You can decide how you're going to live your life. You can either be a tree grounded in the word of God, where God tells you how to live your life and to honor him and to, to um, be blessed by him, or you can be the chaff. What do you want to be? What do you want your life to be like? So I think God is saying the key to it is, as he began the psalm, do you believe, do you meditate on, do you study, do you try to understand the word of God? Now, I know that the Bible is a hard book to understand. It's big and intimidating. And maybe you've heard this before. You know, you need to read the Bible. You need to study it. And maybe you tried it. You dug out this old King James Bible that your dad gave you, you know, when you turned 12. And you start reading it. And it makes no sense. And it just seems like it's almost more trouble than it's worth. I think a lot of us have had that kind of experience, but it doesn't have to be that way. And we are really fortunate live, to live in a time where there are some great, understandable editions of the Bible. And I have stressed this before, but here's my favorite. It's the English Standard Version of the Bible. And you can get these for $25, $30 online. And the, so much I love about this. Let, let me just say, and this is going to sound cocky, but I've been to seminary, you know. <laughs> I've studied the Bible for years. There is so much in it I don't understand or that I get wrong. I use something like this. So not only does it have the text that's easy to understand, it's in a modern English that makes sense. It also has notes explaining it as well. And one of the things I love about this is it also is audible. So you can download it onto your computer or your phone, and, and here's the way I use it. If, so I'm reading, studying the book of Ephesians. I'll pull up chapter one on my computer, I'll set it on audio, and then this guy with this really good voice comes on and he reads the first couple paragraphs, and then I stop it, and then I look at the notes that are right there beside it where it explains what it read. And, and often I'll say, oh, yeah, yeah. Sometimes I go, oh, I didn't catch it. You know, it's a little different than what I understood. It helps me to understand the word of God. And then I have to ask myself, so based on that, how should I be living my life? 
Are there things in my life that God would want me to change? Are there ways in my life maybe that I could be honoring God, but I'm not? How should I be living as a, as a husband, as a father, as a grandfather, as a neighbor, as a friend? Where do we find it? We find it in the word of God. So when I think about a journey of faith, I believe the thing that, for me at least, made the most difference in my life has been the word of God. And I hold it out to you with that same sense of encouragement that I've enjoyed. Get a good study Bible. Begin a discipline of, of reading it and trying to understand it, thinking about what it says and what it means in your life. And when you do, I think, it can move you from being chaff to being the oak tree. Let's pray. Lord, I think for most of us, many of us anyway, the Bible is uh, intimidating and we're hesitant even to try to get into it too deep. But if it's the key to our maturity as Christians, we need it. And so I would pray for these friends that they would have the, the courage and the desire uh, to try again maybe to, to study to meditate on, to think about uh, your word, because without it, Lord, our lives are like the chaff that the wind blows away. Amen.